Hello, everybody. This is Jeremy Swenson, and this is episode number nine of the Abstract Forward Consulting Podcast, where what we do here is we interview security thought leaders, technology thought leaders, pen testers, senior consultants, toolmakers, and other innovative commentators with the goal to shine a light on the tools, tactics, and strategy that's going to improve security and operational efficiency, breaking the corporate bureaucratic status quo, which plagues many organizations. Today's topic is a heavy one, it's very relevant, and that is uh, CISO risk management and threat modeling best practices. Uh, CISOs and CIOs have many tough decisions to make around risk management and a limited budget to do it with. And one of the ways they can do it is by modeling those threats and then better decide how to prioritize the money to mitigate those threats. With that backdrop, I I wanted to find two experts to have a lengthy conversation about how to do this. And in my searching, I, I came across two really great individuals with really great backgrounds, which they're going to uh, describe uh, after I introduce them. Today we have uh, Nathaniel Engelson and we have uh, Don Malloy. First of all, I'd like to ask Don to just go ahead and introduce himself. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for inviting me to be here. I'm happy to be part of this. So right now I am the chairman of Oath which is the initiative for open authentication. We um, wrote the algorithms for multi-factor authentication a number about 10 years ago uh, to standardize this and make it open source, to make it interoperable across uh, all different types of networks. And we accomplished that, it's open source. And today this is what most everybody uses. Uh, In addition to that, I am a uh, cheerleader advocate for a Korean organization called Dual Auth that uses these auth algorithms in their technology. Uh, they have a access control and physical access and uh, payment access control systems. I was trained uh, initially as an organic chemist and moved into security with semiconductors a number of years ago. And now I'm uh, doing uh, whatever I need to do to help bring security to the world. We actually started up a IoT security conference, which we put on hold due to COVID, but that's uh, also a little uh, pet uh, project of mine. Great, Don, thank you so much for being here. Um, Authentication is so, so important. Nathaniel, if you could go ahead and just give our audience an introduction of, of your background. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Jeremy. So I'm Nathaniel Engelson. I'm the founder of Callback Security. Uh, we're getting into how to leverage the ability for servers to call out to the cloud to avoid having incoming channels open to your bastion hosts and jump boxes, etc. Provide additional layer of security and additional I would say, uh, preventative measures to keep hackers outside of your perimeter. What I've done uh, in the past, been in software engineering for over 20 years, both as an individual contributor and as an executive. So I've been responsible for implementing security controls for over two decades. Uh, Worked for small companies, worked for large companies, worked for some of the largest in the world 
banks, logistics providers, huge healthcare organizations, been in casino. So very kind of wide ranging uh, set of um, set of industries. Most recently, uh, I've worked for a, a public company as the uh, head of cloud and infrastructure and security uh, and a CTO of gambling and gaming organization. So a lot of compliance there before I struck out on my own with uh, callback security. In general, uh, I'm really looking forward to talking more about today's topic when it comes from the point of view of these digital products that everybody's using nowadays and would have been um, so hot in the marketplace over the past 20 years. Don and Nathaniel, thank you so much for being here to talk about threat modeling, CISO risk management best practices, and even much, much more. But let's just start at the very beginning with what is threat modeling? Because I don't think everybody uh, out there knows exactly what threat modeling is, or at least they may have some misconceptions about what it is and maybe uh, what what is not included with it. And I think the first way to do that is to um, to talk about the stride methodology which was uh, invented by microsoft in 1999 and adapted in 2002 and uh, the stride methodology what stride stands for that's s-t-r-i-d-e what it stands for is s spoofing which is uh, identify that's pretending to be something or someone other than yourself tampering that's tampering with data or modifying something on the disk network memory or elsewhere and then reputation which is claiming that you did you didn't do something or were not responsible can be honest or false also known as non-repudiation and then the i is information disclosure which means providing information to someone not authorized to access it. And then D is denial of service, exhausting resources needed to provide service. Uh, you hear a lot about those attacks in the news. And then E is elevation of privilege, allowing someone to do something they are not authorized to do. Uh, privilege is being escalated. So say someone has uh, the, the very lowest privilege, just a, a viewer, and then they become an editor, and then they become an admin. And that's usually what uh, you know a threat actor wants to do is elevate those privileges within an organization to do something bad. But the stride methodology just breaks out these different parts, um, so we can understand wh- what 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 parts uh, a threat can do. Um, again, that's spoofing identity for S, tampering with data for T. R- reputation for R, information disclosure for I, denial of service for D an elevation of privilege for E. Essentially what you're doing here is you're trying to model the steps that a exploit would take uh, based on this methodology. Do you have evidence to believe that your, your, you know, your threat can do you know, all of these things? And if they can do all of these things, what is the detail of that? And has it been done before? And is there documentation that it has been done before? So that's what helps someone rank the risk of, uh, of, of a threat via this threat modeling um, methodology. So I'll just open it up to um, Nathaniel to share with me his thoughts. So I think it's a great starting point for the type of threat modeling that we need to do uh, in this modern kind of cloud environment that we have, this technical environment that we're in. Why I say that is because 
what stride stands for all of those different items, spoofing, tampering, repudiation, etc. They're all incredibly germane for the types of attacks that we need to be cognizant about when uh, thinking about securing our perimeter, right? So it's a great place to start. But I'm saying it's a place to start because it's only a bit on the intelligence side. There's so much more to do once you understand more about what your attackers are coming at you with. So you have stride, you've got the attack tree, etc. It's great to understand how they're coming at you, but there's just the rest of the modeling and then um, everything to do with the actual securitization of your environment. Yeah, well said. And I, sh- I should add some back information um, to Stride. You should assume that you're you know, a CISO or a CIO of, let's just say, a mid-sized company. You know that there's threats out there against your company. Maybe they want to steal your credit card data or your healthcare data, or maybe your intellectual property. And it depends on the type of business you do. Each company's different. Each industry's different. But you, uh, as that risk security leader, what you have to be doing is saying, what are my most critical assets? And do I have somebody within the organization that actually is looking at threat modeling that's going out there and maybe they have a subscription to some dark web monitoring service. And what they're trying to figure out is, has someone already stolen our data? And is there intelligence out there that you know we, we can use the, thr- the stride methodology to risk rank uh, or is there not? But I mean, the first thing is you, you need to do threat modeling at all because a lot of organizations, they don't even do threat modeling. They don't set aside the budget to do it. They might do information security. They'll do IT compliance, but they may not necessarily do threat modeling. And particular smaller companies, they have a very limited budget. So probably they have some IT staff and they're wearing multiple hats, like is often the case. And that's a very... Um, challenging space to be in. Don, I want to uh, hand the ball back to uh, you and hear kind of your take on threat modeling, the stride methodology, or you know, even if you want to talk about the pasta methodology or attack tree, which we really haven't gone over in detail, but we can get to that. But just give, give us your thoughts. Sure, sure. <clears throat> Thanks, Jeremy. The, on the threat modeling, starting out at the beginning, companies need to look at their design, right? It has to be secure uh, just to protect against vulnerabilities early on. And they have to be able to do the intelligence, right? If they're not looking up and, and, and be aware of, of what's happening with their databases, and that's a problem, right? And they have to take the, the assets and do identification of that assets and try to mitigate uh, any capabilities that's gonna come against them and, and do an assessment. You know, if they don't do those things early on, they're, they're not even they're not even getting to the starting gate, right? But when you start talking into, you know, I really like the pasta being half Italian anyway. Uh, <laughs> I like the steps in in, in the pasta methodology of defining the objectives so that you know exactly, you know, what the business objectives are initially, right? This has to come down from the top. You need to have the right uh, C-suite people to develop this, right? And then along with that, you need to develop the, the, the technical scope of it, all right? What are the boundaries of, of, of your uh, capabilities, right? And, and then you have to look at your application and, and the decomposition of it, right? You have to look at use cases and, and entry points and trust levels and identify the actors and, and where this is going to happen. And then you get into your, your threat analysis and getting into probabilities, the attack scenarios, and, 
and then the vulnerability uh, and weakness analysis. You have to look at those existing vulnerabilities. Where where are we? You know, you have to get everybody involved in this. Everybody has to step up and start doing this reporting. And then you do the attack modeling and you look at those surfaces, right? As, as, as you know, we had talked a little bit when I mentioned about the IoT. As we're getting into 5G, the attack surface space is going up enormously, right? And and I can tell you stories that, that it just, people just don't understand, you know, that once we get everything connected to this internet, the, the attack space is, is, is enormous, right? And then you have to do your risk and your, your impact analysis and, and look at the, your mitigation strategies along with that. That's really important. Uh, if you don't have that plan, you know, then you're going to fail. Don, what a good um, summary of the PASTA methodology, which is a newer methodology uh, developed in 2012, containing seven stages um, you just defined. But for our audience, I'll just say it one more time. The methodology is to define the objectives, define the technical scope, the application decomposition, the threat analysis, vulnerability and weakness analysis, attack modeling, and then uh, risk and impact analysis, as you just described in more detail than I did. But what I want to do now is come up with an example. And my example is insider threat, because organizations in this pandemic environment where individuals are stressed, they're working from home, and addiction is up, gambling is up, but insider threat is always a concern at big organizations because you know there are people who have access to the crown jewels and they may be tempted to sell. Usually it's data theft. They're selling you know, intellectual property data or customer data. They're selling something. So organizations have to have a way to you know, monitor for that, to report on that, and to, to, to mitigate that risk because – you can't lose your your crown jewels or your most important data. It's uh, it's not feasible. So, Nathaniel, I know you've been at a lot of companies. You're a well versed uh, business tech risk executive. In your experience, what have you seen with insider threat risk mitigation that works? Really, some of the fundamentals that are out there are what the doctor ordered when it comes to insider threats, namely least privileges, right? You don't give people access to what they don't need, all right? So you limit it, okay? But then you also have to have, I want to say robust, but more like efficient onboarding and offboarding processes so that when people are no longer uh, part of your organization, they can't get to those that the privileged, they don't no longer have the privileged access that they once had, so they can't get in, retaliate, etc. But that maybe two thirds of the answer, the other one third are actually actually people who are still insiders. They have access because they're supposed to, they just abuse it. So what does it come down to? It comes down to the the event um, logging, right? And incident management. So your SIM tool, again, fundamentals, can really help you understand if something is going wrong when it comes to maybe insiders accessing things they're not supposed to, or maybe think of it as, you know, from an unusual place because they gave somebody else the credentials, or maybe a weird time of the day because they don't want anybody to notice what they're doing. So if you're if you make sure you're following the principles of least uh, privilege, right? You're making sure you've got good security, incident, and event uh, information, right? I think you can really start to at least track when those uh, or mitigate, but also track insider kind of threats. 
I want to also link it back to some threat modeling too, because it's something that people forget about constantly. I would say we've gotten better over the past five, eight years. But you know, when you're thinking about your actual tools and your DFDs, your data flow diagrams, when you're thinking about your application, your data, folks, I've seen it, you've seen it, people are thinking external. Everybody's thinking external. You're thinking about phishing, you're thinking about accidents, you're thinking about hackers. It's so hard to also remember your insider threats. And then it's only like the back half. You have to have special uh, back halves of the, of the methodologies. It, you have to have um, special different types of definitions of the attacks because they're not really exploiting anything, right? They're just doing something malicious. Very hard to track, very hard to remember to think about. It's very hard to track it as a vulnerability and weakness, right? So people, um, you have to go through your methodologies, but remember that once you've done the, the bottom-up work of understanding your value proposition, understanding your customers, understanding your data, you have to then go through that zero trust, assume that we're hacked, assume people are getting into what we have kind of thought process because that's where an insider starts from. Exactly. You know, one thing that comes to mind when I when I hear you speak, Nathaniel, is um, groups and how groups are created and, and this concept of inheritance. You know, and, and there's this big move to Office 365 and a lot of cloud um, tools for collaboration, doc sharing, list sharing, data sharing. And we all work in this interconnected SharePoint backbone infrastructure to, to get, you know, work done. And the, the, the inheritance uh, problem around groups can violate that least privileged principle if you don't have your groups defined right. So basically what I'm meaning is you, you're giving somebody access, you're adding them to a group, but that said group um, gives them access to other stuff. They're inheriting access to that other stuff, which they really shouldn't have because you don't have the right group or role. So this, this concept of group versus role. Now, I, I know a lot about this, but I want to hear actually from Don because I, I'm thinking he has a lot to talk about group, role, inheritance, least privilege, segregation of duties. Don, what have you seen in, uh, in, in your experience? So I, I know when we start talking about, you know, the insider threats, uh, that is to me one of the easiest areas for companies to protect themselves from because they they have the they have the tools they have the people there if they don't put in the right the pam system you know for the privilege then they're not segregating the people into the right roles and groups right so it takes i mean i what is the percentage i think it's 60 percent of 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 all insider threats are are, are malicious you know and you know, uh, Ponemon uh, Institute was talking about the numbers and, and it's just, you know, it's staggering as to how much money and, and you know, how many uh, attacks happen that way. So uh, I think we have to use that. You know, you don't allow the, uh, the person in customer service to, you know, have access to the, you know, the, the financials. And, you know, you just, those are the things that are the, this isn't, uh, you know, I hate to say the word, but this is not rocket science, right? I mean, <laughs> sometimes it's 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 pretty obvious where you need to do the protections, right? And uh, having all those uh, insider 
uh, intrusion capability, like with the you know the cyber kill train try, chain, trying to trying to see where those uh, bad actors are coming from, is uh, is something that's a it's an effort. It's a daily effort, and like you say, small small to mid sized companies struggle with that because they don't have the uh, resources, the manpower to be able to go after it. So it has to be automated. Automation is the name of the game um, on both sides. The the threat actors are using automation very well, right? Yeah. And um, there's a lot of companies that have tools that automate, uh, you know, some of these controls, security and risk controls, compliance controls. Um, but I know a lot of companies that um, I've interacted with, consulted with, um, some are better at how they set up roles and groups and some are worse and it roles and groups. I think big organizations, they get so big and there's so many roles and there's so many groups and there's a group for this special scenario that only lasts six months for this special project. Right. And then they forget to change it or to get rid of it because the, the, the problem is with groups and with roles. And I'm talking about in, in mid-sized to bigger organization when they have tons of them, you know what I mean? And, and they give them names and, and they mm-hmm. try to get them organized, but they have tons and tons of them. It's a, it's, it's a job just to manage those and to audit those. But if here's the thing, if they take away the someone from the wrong role and the wrong group, then that could potentially break something or allow something to be broken because said person doesn't have access to, you know, do um, what they need to do. If it's a service account, um, then, then it, it, that's more likely to be broken because obviously a service account is not a person going in and doing it, but it's uh, some sort of, you know, IT interaction that's making something work. So there, there's, there's a careful balance with groups, permissions, roles. And I think, I think the, the moral of the story is you got to be clean. You got to be organized. And uh, you need to dedicate the money to to have a team monitoring this and, and reporting on this. And you know what they say, Jeremy, about you know the best laid plans of mice and men. Uh, the second you have a good strategy for your entire directory, someone with enough clout says, "Nope, we're going to get my pet vendor in with oh, like too much privilege. We're going to have my team." be able to do these things that are shadow IT related and they need access to XYZ. So the second you even think you get a good handle on it, something comes along to blow it up. Uh, You're so (laughs) absolutely right. I I don't think it's ever going to be perfect. And I'm not going to talk about where I've seen this because that's private, but I don't think (laughs) it's, I don't think it's ever going to be perfect. Um, Don, what are some tools that you've seen on the market that can help with this? Well, Jeremy, I know that, you know, one of the areas that's, that's so important is when you start talking about, you know, vulnerability and, and, and vulnerability scanning and how people get involved. And, uh, when you have internal systems like this, you need to be uh, very strong on your, um, your access, you know, your, your access control, your IAM systems have to be very, very concise. Uh, I found, uh, I've seen companies use uh, behavioral authentication, which uh, will will track the people during the work day so they can tell what they're working on, where they're working on it. And those those are things that we we hate to talk about, but they're necessary. 
because of, of what we see the potential uh, risks are. Volume of uh, data flow is another thing that is monitored. You know, there is a certain level of normal data flow activity mm-hmm. uh, that an organization is monitoring for and might even be down to a certain business or, or managerial area. And if they see some deviation from that, they might want to look into that further. Um, this this work from home context that we're in um, across the world really is through a wrench into the baseline or what is normal. And so what a lot of organizations are facing in this context is their groups, their permissions, their inheritances, um, their roles, they're all messed up right. because they've had to create new ones because of this mass work from home context, which it, it, it takes away access from you know the physical location. So a good practice to, you know, to reduce your risk and to um, – you know, save, save some uh, money because people aren't at the real estate is disable disable badge access to real estate. I mean, if, if, if we're in a default work from home because of pandemic, employees don't need access to go into the building. Uh, they just don't, right? Why give them that access? Disable that. You, they don't need it. So that's one thing you can do to reduce that risk. Uh, and that's going to save you some money uh, because you don't have to monitor that real estate location as much. You still need to monitor it. I mean, you got server rooms in there, things like that. It, you know, there may be some key employees going in to do, you know, technical work to those those, those servers and that uh, big infrastructure, et cetera. But most of your people are at home and the, the backbone that they're relying on is the ISP provider. Um, and the ISP providers in this context have been taxed. A lot of people have been, you know, upping their... Um, whatever their bandwidth, if, if they can, but the networks have definitely been taxed. Um, but let's move on to the attack tree methodology. Um, different from the first two, first being the stride methodology, which is tied pretty much to a lot of technical aspects of how an organization would be compromised. And then the pasta methodology, um, which is a little bit more um, business risk flow monitoring. And so it's, what attack tree is, is it's probably one of the, oldest type of uh, threat modeling tactics. And uh, I'm not sure if it came out of the military, but it, it definitely has a tie-in to military tactics because good military planners, they plan for worst case scenarios, right? How can they be attacked at the base? They can attack the base from air. They can attack the base by going under the fence. They can drive a vehicle into the base. They can um, get an imposter to you know, trick trick the the gate person to get into the base uh they can they can do lots of things to get into the base right and um what the attack tree uh seeks to do is it has you link out in a tree with branches and sub branches all of the possible ways that you can be attacked and let your creativity do the work because there's all kinds of ways you can be attacked that perhaps you didn't think you could be attacked. And what attack, attack tree methodology seeks to do is to flesh that out, right? And um, so, Nathaniel, let's 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 hear your insight on what you've seen with the use of attack tree methodologies at organizations. Yeah, truth be told, some of the mid-sized and smaller organizations they don't do attack trees. They quote unquote, pay for them. It's part of their threat intelligence. They have to contextualize them based on their actual application architecture and their business service architecture. 
but it's often kind of complicated and difficult to keep um, aware of uh, what your external threats are, and I guess internal threats, we just talked about that, and understanding exactly what kind of uh, tools they're going to use, attacks they're going to have, and what that really means for your infrastructure. Uh, trying to think of a good example here. Okay, so um, botnets, for example. Plenty of people don't really understand, and I'm, I'm not one of those people that really understands them very well, uh, exactly what it means and how to mitigate getting attacked from a botnet, right? But yet plenty of script kiddies, nation state actors are going to be using those. And trust me, none of us on this call are probably all that in depth for how um, all of our IoT devices are getting turned into zombies. Right. So my point is the following midsize and smaller organizations, they kind of pay for attack trees. They, they, they need to have other people telling them um, the context of what these attacks are and what it really means to their infrastructure. But now the largest organizations, uh, they absolutely have people doing this. Uh, they're not sharing them a whole lot, but it, it starts with understanding more from the bottom up. What do you have that somebody wants? And who is that person? So you start bottom up, recognize where your weaknesses really are, and think about then who wants to exploit that, what tools, and you're, you're, you have kind of the best information that, that uh, money can buy, so to speak. Uh, use that information to understand how an attacker would be getting into your weaknesses. So large organizations certainly doing it. Uh, nothing very different from what you might be able to see just Googling about it. Who's doing what and what does that really mean? And what are the different permutations this attack could take? And what are the different permutations that outcome could take? And you're building basically part of your um, uh, of your kill chain, perhaps, right? So uh, yeah, that's what I know about attack trees. Very important for understanding who is coming into your system. But again, only that first part. You need to have that bottom up. What do we actually have that is even that even makes any of these attacks relevant? got to kind of finish the loop there. Well said. I want to give an example here. I want us to use our imagination. And for everyone listening, I want you to imagine right now that you are in the boardroom of Amazon.com. You're in the boardroom of Amazon.com. You're an executive at Amazon.com. And they say to you, let's make an attack tree. You know, Amazon.com probably has one of the biggest infrastructures in the world, technically. And they are responsible for the backbone of so many private enterprises and even governments. So Amazon.com, although kind of an anomaly because they're almost a near monopoly, um, but they're a real good example of an organization that would do an attack tree. And you can see that there are likely organizations that would benefit from Amazon.com being down for five minutes. Because if it's down for five minutes, you know, how many millions of dollars do they lose? That's kind of how you have to think of this when you're looking at who who has an interest in having you down and what is the impact of you being down? And then what are the different ways said threat actor can get you down? And then what are you doing to mitigate those different ways that threat actors can get you down? And an organization as big as Amazon, the threats come every which way possible from you know, phishing to probably even paid spies who are trying to act like vendors and get into an Amazon building to put a USB into some sort of network device or something like that. Um, but again, Amazon is 
kind of an, an anomaly because they're so big, they're so sophisticated, and, and, and they're so huge. So Don Malloy, uh, chairman of um, OAuth, what would you do if you were in that boardroom and Amazon leadership asked you about what, what they should prioritize on their tax tree? <laughs> That's great. Great question. You know, Jeremy, it's very interesting to see how Amazon has – as AWS just just rose up, and within a couple of years' time, it seemed that nobody knew who they were, and all of a sudden they had fifty percent market share, <laughs> at beating out Microsoft and Oracle, and and how they did that was was beyond me. I mean, all of a sudden you started seeing them at trade shows and AWS, and they're, they're teaching people and they're, and they're providing free services. Uh, but I, I think to to answer your question. When you when you're looking at the, at the an attack tree model, you know you have to look at the, the values, right? All the variables, and you have to marry those those variables with the knowledge of of the attackers. The more knowledge you can get about the attacker, because they have different sets of skill, they have different levels of, of risk aversion and access. Are they doing this for money? Are they doing this for fun? Or you know what is what is their modus operandi? Because that's, that changes the way that people are going to go after it. When you talked to uh, Nathaniel about the bots and whatnot, when, when I got involved in the, the IoT security things, you know, the uh, Mirai botnet had just happened uh, where uh, the kid took control of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of cameras because they all had the same default password. And he pointed them all at Dyn. D-Y-N, which is now Oracle, right, in Manchester, New Hampshire. And he took him down with a massive DDoS uh, attack. And that was, you know, that shut down uh, Netflix, New York Times, and, and a bunch of other sites for, for hours. And it was, he didn't do it for, for money. He did it for fun. And so how do you, how do you analyze that effort? And that's, that's the key because we have all different types, right? You have nation-state uh, attackers. You have organized crime. And you have the people that are doing it for fun. Those, I think, are the hardest ones to, to, because they don't really have a motive other than showing their friends what they've done. I've got a newsflash for both of you. Um, as of yesterday, uh, Krebs on Security um, noted researcher, cybersecurity commentator, yep. um, speaker, had, had – yeah, brilliant guy – had suggested that um, that this uh, 911 outage was um, – the result of, of hackers, which I don't doubt. I haven't done a whole lot of research mm -hmm. on it, but um, th this is an example of, um, you know, li a likely attack uh, where government didn't do as good as they could have with, uh, with, with, with the tech trees. What are you guys' thoughts on, you know, recent exploits like this that uh, government may be facing in the middle of the pandemic? In California, our uh, EDD department, the uh, unemployment division, is still running software in COBOL. Uh, okay. So you talk about vulnerabilities. <laughs> Go ahead, Nick. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, I, I'll take a different opinion on that one before I, um, I give you my, my opinion in total. Like, I think keeping COBOL is probably brilliant at this point. I think it's it's a little you know what I mean. It's a little bit older, and so it's harder to to basically break into. I think some of those machines are air gapped, so it's just like it's 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 amazing um, that we have COBOL still around. Big banks. Uh, we learned about um, unemployment 
systems in so many states. COBOL, hard to change. Uh, yeah, so maybe a, a net positive, maybe a net positive. In general, though, I mean, I want I, I want to go back to the, um, uh, I forget the name of the attack, but it was that ransomware attack that hit the British uh, National Institutes of Health so hard a few years ago. And it's the one where that um, kid found the domain name, registered it, and it was the kill switch for the worm. Um, again, cannot maybe want to cry. I think it was the want to cry attack. Um, governments are going to face that more and more as new employees, digital native Gen Z millennials, Gen X, Gen Zs and millennials do have their first government jobs. They're going to be so used to, and I'm, I'm, thinking through this as I say it here, they're going to be so used to using digital tools and computing devices that I completely out of the blue, I think um, would be more susceptible to like uh, that USB drive that's left on the ground and they just plug it in to see what it is. Those types of attacks. So susceptible into seeing something that they think is a social media post come in on an email and they click on it. Right? I think they're going to be highly susceptible to accidentally being the vector of, of some type of malicious worm or program. So I think that's where the government really needs to be paying attention to. It's what got the NIH. It's what um, uh, led to Stuxnet's success with those Iranian centrifuges. Honestly, I think government is going to be pummeled, not from external nation states with direct attacks. All right. Uh, but with disinformation, which isn't really um, on topic for this podcast, but also those weird um, um, little like phishing and and USB type attacks, and they're going to be it's going to be prevalent. It's just going to happen over and over and over again. We're going to see that. Well, I love everything you're saying, Nathaniel. And um, no, disinformation isn't on this topic, but it's slightly related. But what I want to talk about is something I've been getting a lot of lately, which is smishing. These stupid text messages that come, come from, I don't know where, I don't know where, and robocalls too. So I've been getting robocalls on my business phone and all these wacky texts to click on this link. And you know, fun, funny, funny thing, a lot of them are political and I don't know that they're real. I think they're spoofed. I think what the threat actors are doing is they're, they're, they're trying to pretend to be of a certain political persuasion and they got some sort of um, smishing campaign that, and they hope people are stupid enough to click on these things. And there's a lot of them. I don't know if you guys have seen an uptick in malicious texts and robocalls but in, just personally and what i've what i've heard from my other friends in my tech circle there's a lot more of that because email um phishing attempts or ransomware attempts that's been done before it's going to continue to be done but are you guys getting more text yep absolutely absolutely i get a couple a day and i i, I diligently go through them and block them and and some some weeks it, it, it <laughs> calms down and then it builds back up again. And usually it's a text that's going out to twenty people, and you have to scroll all the way down to the bottom to get to the originator to block that one person. So it's it's a bit of an effort, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's really annoying, and it just goes <laughs> to show you how persistent the threat actors are, and um, how we really need to be vigilant when review, reviewing not only our emails. But our, our text messages and um, 
and the calls that we're getting. I got a call where someone said my social security number was uh, taken taken away from me. Now I didn't take that seriously, but some of these people are some of these people are, are pretty funny. But I want to I want to change the topic a little bit to something that's so directly dependent to threat modeling, uh, as we've been talking about here, and that's kind of vendor risk management, vendor risk assessment, because one of the biggest risks within an organization, obviously we talked about insider threat, and vendors can certainly be insiders, but if they're not insiders, then maybe they're they're a step less than insider. So maybe they have access to some portal for some limited access because they do something for you. You know, and if we go back years to the target data breach and a lot of other breaches, um, the vendor, the third party was the conduit which the threat actor got in to the organization and then spread and compromised other parts of their infrastructure, which you know led to uh, you know the the downfall uh, and and the financial consequences. So, Don Malloy, what what is your insight and experience around uh, vendor management, vendor risk management? One of the areas that I see how that happens is, like you say, there's, there's this vulnerability and it doesn't matter even though like i said i was involved in in secure hardware chips that that would protect one side of the chip versus the other but if people are lazy in 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 the way they set up their systems and go back to the sony the sony hack right uh when streaming first became popular right they had the same on on all on the same servers where they're streaming movies to their customers, had all the videos and pictures of all their uh, actors and actresses. And, and so they had private information in the same servers that they're putting all the public information. And it's really, it's a simple thing. Don't put them together. You know, I go back to a number of years ago, RSA, one of the largest security companies, they've been hacked a couple of times. They had every one of their 230 million tokens at the time compromised because some of their one engineer responded to a, a phishing site and he got into their network. And on their network, they kept the seed files where they did the email. Now, I, I, can, I can understand Sony. They're a movie company. They're not a security company. But RSA doing that same thing, they are the largest at the time, the largest security company. Why would you put that on the same server network? It's beyond me. So there are some simple things that companies can do, right, Nathaniel? Uh, absolutely. You know, I mean, when it comes to vendor risk management, like there's only so much you can do. Vendors are at arm's length for a reason. And there are absolutely programs you can put in place, questionnaires you can send. Thank God there are uh, compliance programs like PCI, um, SOC, SOC 2. They, they go a long way, right? Compliance is almost security, but it's not actually security, of course. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely not. Bingo. Um, and so if they're, if they're compliant with some of the most important compliance programs, again, it's not security, it's compliance. But you get to at least have some warm and fuzzies and go from a position of optimism, right? Here's what I, I think improves that, right? And it's um, the intersection of the vendor and your services and infrastructure. 
you are actually in control of what your vendor can get into, how they get into it. Uh, are you recording them? We're talking about repudiation, non-repudiation. Are you recording what they're doing? Are you rotating passwords? Are you enforcing good password hygiene? That intersection of the vendor and your systems is where security comes down. The Sony hack, all of that information was on Sony servers. The Target hack, the HVAC vendor um, got penetrated. They got into an HVAC control system and then pivoted from there. Okay. The, uh, the, tr the, the, the key thing here is that they did not actually have Sony or Target's information within their systems. So if you keep it in your systems, have good hygiene, the security comes when the vendor gets into your systems, and then they can just stay compliant. And I think, I think that's enough. I do. I think that's enough. Principle of least privilege, right? Yeah, least privileges is definitely key. And nowadays, vendor risk management is so interconnected uh, with the supply chain. I mean, we need vendors to do business, and we need to have a portal for vendors to to get data and information to share invoices. And that's just that that's there's a convenience value in in having that. But uh, those vendors shouldn't have more access than they need. And we shouldn't we shouldn't assume that oh it's just a simple portal for invoices uh, that we don't need to spend any time reviewing um, the logs to see if anything uh, abnormal happened there. Now if you're a big vendor, you, you're probably going to spend more time looking at that. If you're a smaller vendor, probably not so much. But this vendor thing gets really complex when we take it to the to the um, like the fourth party, right? So, you know, you're a vendor, let's just say, you know, we, we let's, let's, let's pick, um, let's just pick target. Cause we love target. You know, they're local here in Minnesota and they're pretty awesome, but uh, you know, target is so big and so successful that they, they have their direct vendors, but they also have vendors that are not the direct vendors, but that are fourth party to them, that their, their vendors are working with those vendors and that's kind of where a gap area, gray area exists. So in a lot of the contracts that they'll write up, they're going to specify, they might try to specify certain requirements for fourth party. That would have to be a pretty high dollar contract because I can imagine in a smaller low dollar contract, you're probably not going to get much effort out of a third party to mandate something to a fourth party. Uh, obviously, they they can't uh, break any laws or be out of compliance. But what are you guys' thoughts on this gray area of third party between fourth party and then the reality that it's going to happen and the other reality that a lot of the fourth parties are key and they're very talented, right? So take another example is government contracting where you have a big, big company like a Booz Allen Hamilton and so they're the third party to the government, but Booz actually hires additional vendors and they work with other consulting companies and they're just managing that relationship. But what do you guys think organizations can do to monitor this gray area between third and fourth party? You know, that's the entire idea behind just contracting, subcontracting. It is... <laughs> It is something for the actuaries and the insurance companies to be paying attention to. I, I'll tell you that much. I think at some point, especially, you know, you talk about Booz Allen Hamilton, just the sheer size, Kellogg, Brown, and Root, the sheer size. They do everything via subcontractors, basically. That there's just no way to have them all be compliant and secure 
best practices. You never know if it's some guy in New Jersey um, giving you um, overinflated prices for something that fell off the back of a truck, right? You just never know. And so I, I, I joked about it, but it's almost an insurance play. At some point, you know, you're going to get fined, you're going to get gigged, you're going to have to replace people. And I think that's really the level that they're paying attention. They just have to kind of expect it and deal with it uh, at the highest levels. Like it's just the cost of doing business. Uh, I, I agree with what you're saying, um, Nathaniel. I, I do think a lot of these senior managers at these big companies, particularly the consultancies where they are depending on fourth party, what they do is they have a strategy of they may be working with 20, 30, 40 different fourth parties. And they know full well that they may have problems uh, with compliance with a handful of them, and they just take that risk. And um, some some of them won't, and they're not going to spend a lot of time or money on doing the, due, the extra level of due diligence for that fourth party. Uh, they should. Yeah. Uh, they definitely will for the third party, but not so much uh, for the fourth party. And then the other thing that they're relying on is that the end customer doesn't have as much insight to that fourth party. You know what I mean? And because of that, there's some there's there's some hiding that can go on there. And government contracting, I know government yeah. requires you to disclose a lot. And those big government contracts, probably there there's definitely is due diligence and some disclosure. But probably for I'd say for the mid-sized companies, to the even some of the small but still big companies, those fourth parties, those companies may never even know. And so you may have potentially a fourth party that one is out of compliance, um, but even if they are in compliance, they may be completely out of security, but they never see the details of, you know, it, who is this fourth party? Uh, what are they doing exactly? And um, are they secure? Are they compliant? What kind of equipment are they using? Um, it gets It gets kind of complex. I would add this too. Government contracting is all about meeting the absolute bare minimum requirements because that's how you get in cheapest. Like they said, you know, the big um, rockets uh, built by the lowest bidder, right? Meanwhile, they're going to the moon. But I I, I have a little bit of personal knowledge about this too. Like uh, you, you do the bare minimum so that you can have the cheapest contract, but then you do even less if it wasn't specifically called out. There's a huge scandal. I don't know if they put an end to this, but there was a huge scandal for a number of years when, uh, let's just say that um, you know the final product, uh, a certain car, I'm, I'm making that up because I don't want to be too specific about this knowledge I have, but uh, has to be made in America, right? And they say, great, we'll make it in America and American factories. And yet, guess what? Every single part is made in China. Every single subassembly chip, all of that mm-hmm. made in China they're put together in China, thrown in boxes, shipped to America where, where they put the final pieces together and they say, look, it was made in America. That's government contracting. That, but, but you know, let's just make it a little bit wider. That's third and fourth party. It's a little bit of, you know, hiding your eyes a little bit, putting together a, a checklist for the bare minimums. Fourth parties get away with a lot. 
And that's unfortunate. Well said, Nathaniel uh, Engelson. Again, for everyone listening, this is the Abstract Forward podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Swenson. We are having a great conversation with two thought-leading minds um, on CISO risk management and threat modeling best practices. Uh, you just heard from Nathaniel Engelson talking about the complexities of uh, a fourth party in auto manufacturing. And we were also hearing from uh, Don Malloy talking about um, risk management, identity access management, semiconductor practices, and a whole lot of other things. And uh, we covered so far uh, three types of threat modeling uh, methodologies. We started with the threat modeling methodology known as Stride. Then we covered Pasta. We talked a little bit about attack trees. Uh, talked a little bit about vendor risk management, and that's how we got to fourth party. But I want to take it back to um, identity and access management, which there's a lot of tools in the marketplace that uh, organizations can get. Uh, identity access management is basically you know, a badge access tool, uh, a password, a user ID, could be a fingerprint scanner, could be an eye scanner. And uh, identity access management is getting more and more sophisticated because threat actors are able to imitate identities. And I want to talk about this, um, this, this complexity of adding a, a, a third layer to identity access management. So you have, you have your passcode, and you have your badge um, that so you would say that's two, right? That'd be two. Um, but you add a third, and maybe that'd be a smart card, or maybe that'd be a fingerprint scanner, or maybe that'd be an eye scanner, or like Don, I think it was you who said they're monitoring your keystrokes and act to know that it that it is actually you. And this is really relevant when we get into schooling at home. I know that in the pandemic. Uh, people, you know, school doesn't stop, learning doesn't stop, growing doesn't stop, but, you know, you're at a computer, and if you're in school, you've got to be doing work, you've got to be learning, young people tend to get distracted, right? So they're using monitoring technologies to to know, you know, is somebody at their computer, are they actually moving the computer, are they doing things and uh, this is just a real interesting time because there's privacy considerations about this. But I want to hand it back to you, Don Malloy. I want to hear your thoughts on the complexities of identity access management, in particular, adding that third data element like an eye scan, a smart card, or you know, monitoring the keystrokes. Sure, sure. We talk about you know one factor, two factor, and three factor, and it's getting to be necessary because uh, the passwords, it's kind of funny. Bill Gates declared the password dead in 1984. Here we are with it 36 years later, still using passwords. Uh, the behavioral authentication is a, is a nice, unique way. As you look at what happened with COVID, everybody's like you just said, uh, Jeremy, home. We're learning from home. No, no one's going back to school yet. Universities aren't going back. So you have to take tests and you have to do all your work from home. How do you know that that student is the one that's typing in those answers if he's writing up a paper? You can tell this with the behavioral authentication. You can do continuous authentication, which is something there's a, a couple companies doing it. Once you know, it comes to mind specifically a small company in, in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. 
And they've, they've had their product for a couple of years now, and they were having difficulty gaining traction. Well, since COVID's come along, they've got investors, they've got all sorts of interest in their company now because they're doing something that now there's a need. The need has just been created. But, but all this, this move into multi-factor authentication is, um, is really important. Until we get a self-sovereign identity, we're going to be struggling with that. Uh, just a, a quick story, like we all heard about Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, and, and Google Pay, whatever, right? Android Pay. When Apple Pay came out, Visa said they had a four, um, over a 5% fraud rate. And it's not that Apple Pay wasn't secure. It's very secure. The banks, in their rush to sign people up, were signing the fraudsters up in the front end with fake credit cards numbers. So, you know, once you're in, you're in. And it's just like the blockchain. Blockchain is really secure. But it's the front end. If you're not authenticating the people getting into that blockchain, then you're letting them in the front door. And, and this is where we need to have uh, more authentication of, mm. of our identification. You know? And the PII issue is something that's not going to go away. People are, are starting to realize that once your fingerprints are gone, they're gone, right? I mean, yeah, it's a template. It's a template. But, but people are using that, and they're, they're, you know, they're able to steal it and copy it. You know? And that's a problem. Yeah, the thing about fingerprints is uh, they're not actually highly reliable. Exactly. Fingerprints have been proved to be inaccurate. Fingerprint, fingerprint reliability is not like DNA reliability. No. And there are cases, legal cases, I, I'm not an attorney, by the way, but there's some really, if you want to Google it, there I think there's a story of a guy who got charged with a terrorism crime out of, I think, Washington uh, or maybe Oregon. And uh, basically, he was totally the wrong guy and it was a fingerprint error. So fingerprints are definitely subjective. Like many things in, um, in the sciences are subjective. I mean, if we go back to the 80s, even the 90s, especially the 70s and the 60s, what we once thought was a scientific um, valid method to do X is now proven to be complete garbage. And this kind of gets at the whole topic of junk science, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and in with security vendors and security tools, there's a lot of junk science out there. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors, right. pomp and circumstance. And sure, it can attract in... Um, you know, uh, security leaders sure. to want to want to know more, yeah. but uh, the technology and the infrastructure is so complex uh, that it it really depends on how you can customize it for this industry and this company, and then do the use case to see does it does it actually does it actually work? And um, I know that. Nathaniel um, knows a lot about this, and um, he also wants to talk about a couple of other threat modeling methodologies. So, um, Nathaniel, if you want to share your thoughts on either Trike or Vast. Well, let's talk about Trike real quick. Uh, Trike is something that I've liked um, because it's not quite as, well, first of all, it's open source, and it's not as in-depth as Pasta. Pasta is incredibly prescriptive, really good set of tools uh, that go along with each step of the methodology. Trike has a little bit less, right? It's about the actor, the asset, and the action they're going to take. 
cool. Makes sense to me so far, right? But then the calculated risk exposure, okay? When we're talking about threat modeling, when we're talking about risk management, you have to really understand your exposure. What risks are you really setting yourself up for, right? And I love the idea that a big part of trike is your data flow diagrams, understanding much like how vast is process flow diagrams. We've talked about DFDs before. It comes from that bottom-up approach where you have to know what it is your applications are doing because let's call a spade a spade. What we're actually trying to protect, what is the most expensive asset with the highest fines if there's a breach is your data. So it could be great that your application is doing X, Y, and Z, cool loops and caching and everything. That's all good. But what does it mean to the data? Where are you putting your data? Who has your data? Where does it move? Is it encrypted? That's the key thing. And so Trike even just starts there. How are you going to communicate it? How you're storing it? How you're manipulating it? Data at flight, data in flight, data at rest, et cetera. All right. So, you know, you start at one place on those DFDs. You got your data stores, your data flows, then you worked in there, those actors and the actions they're taking, right? Uh, and so that's the approach I've taken as a security executive, but also as um, security focused engineering leader. And so that's a big one I wanted to make sure that we touched upon a bit. Not very old, only about eight years old. And uh, again, not quite as agile as VAST, but something I think takes the right approach. Thank you so much for that summary and commentary on the uh, trike um, threat modeling methodology. Obviously, there's multiple threat modeling methodologies. And uh, the big point here is that you and your organization, you pick one and you stick to it and you you try to run it and you try to apply it. And maybe trike is right for you. Um, Maybe it's not. Maybe Stride's right for you. It really depends on industry. And the other thing that we need to think about in the context of threat modeling is what's our overall, you know, security or IT control framework, which which we're um, aligning to. Um, you know, is it is it COBIT? Um, what is it? What standard are we aligning our organization to? And you know, standards and models, like what we're talking about here, are just a start. They're not a be all and end all. They're just a start. And they're going to help you stay focused and they break out, you know, areas of focus and steps you need to take. And if you don't know those steps or you don't have that focus, then great. Use these methodologies, use these frameworks. But um, if you already have those picked out and it's working well for, for you, you need to refine them. And uh, then you need to start thinking about tools. Which tools uh, do you need to add to your um, toolbox that are going to better defend you and better inform you about, like you said, Nathaniel, protecting that critical data. So I um, want to hear from Don. Don, any thoughts on the two threat methodologies that uh, Nathaniel mentioned? Well, I, I, like, the, I like the trike. Uh, it's, it's a nice, it's a, it's a simple model. Uh, it's more of a uh, requirements type of model. You need to set these requirements in order to reach this uh, stage. So I, I think it, it, for a, a beginner, it, it, it can be useful, but I don't think it has quite the same, uh, like you said, the depth uh, of analysis that you're going to get from a vast or a pasta. Well said. How does a leader measure ROI on threat modeling? 
when I think of um, the ROI on threat modeling or um, conforming to a security compliance risk framework, uh, the way you need to think about the ROI is this. You could be out of business, okay? <laughs> if you don't protect your assets, yeah. if you if you don't um, take the time to do the homework, to pick a security framework, a risk framework, and then a threat modeling um methodology and do the work to apply it and ingrain that in your teams down through the different levels of management. If you don't do that, it's more likely that you will be bang out of business, right? And there's lots of cases at the mid-sized company level where ransomware, ransomware, you hear that ransomware. I don't have names right now. Maybe while I'm talking, you guys can Google them. But there are companies that literally have been put out of business because of ransomware literally said, you know what, this is too expensive to pay for incident response. This is too expensive to hire a law firm. This is too expensive to hire an e-forensic investigation firm. This is too damn expensive. Bang, bang, boom. We're out of business. On to the next thing for the small and the mid-sized companies, right? Now, the other thing that complicates this is insurance coverage, okay? So you want to talk about the ROI? If you don't do these things, chances are your insurance coverage will not be enforceable, right? So if you're that small company, if you're that mid-sized company, if you want to have cyber insurance or any type of tech liability insurance, by the way, I did a podcast on that, and there's an article on that at my website, abstractforward.com. You can go find that, search that. It's there. Um, But to be eligible to have coverage for I would say the vast majority of cyber liability or IT compliance insurance coverage, you need to be compliant, right? With IT, PCI, all of the standards, you need to be compliant and you need to show a reasonable level of diligence, right? If you if you are not showing a reasonable level of diligence uh, and don't have documentation to back up that you, you know have some sort of security methodology, IT risk methodology like COBIT, and that you've actually have documentation to show that you're conforming to it and that you've trained on it and you've, you know, matched your controls and your artifacts to it. If you don't have any of that, you don't have anything. All you've got is your say-so, and that's not going to be good enough for an insurance adjuster. You know, the thing about insurance adjusters, what do they like to do, Nathaniel? What do they like to do? No. What's an insurance adjuster's favorite word? No. No or deny. (laughs) They have two favorite words, no and deny. Yeah. And in the here's the other thing. In the middle of a pandemic, when insurance companies already have a lot more life insurance claims, already a lot more health claims, these insurance companies are quick to deny these cyber and IT liability claims. The other thing about cyber and IT liability claims is it's highly subjective as it is. I mean, it's really a new area of law. I mean, I'm not an attorney, but I know this is a newer area of of, of litigation and there isn't a real clear standard over when they should pay and when they shouldn't pay. But what we do know is if you have documented your controls and your compliance to a security risk framework and you've done threat modeling and you can show all this, yeah, they have no reason to deny your claim. And all this is disclosed to you more or less in the fine print should you choose to read it. But a lot of these small and mid-sized companies, they'll be lucky if they have a full-time attorney on staff or a full-time compliance person on staff. Now, the bigger companies, they get this, and they've reviewed these insurance policies, and they know that doing the due diligence to be IT secure, to be IT compliant, to understand their threats 
and vulnerabilities and to rank them and to take actions and spend money to deal with them, that means if they do have a major disaster, it won't put them out of business because they're going to get paid that claim or they'll stop it. You know, so a disaster that, you know, could be a data breach that, you know, gets to all parts of the infrastructure is stopped after it gets to two business units of the infrastructure. It's a nice save, right? So doing this is going to save a rainstorm from becoming a flood. You follow me? That's where the savings is. And, and people don't think about this ahead of time because like Nathaniel said, it's just money spent and you're spending money to avert a bad event that you don't think is going to happen because you're a good professional. The one thing I would add to that though, Jeremy, is that, uh, you know, it's easy then following the principles that you just laid out to develop risk budgets, to lower an appetite for risk, to really communicate to, well, a bean counter, if you will, but an executive. But what we still haven't really determined is that ROI, right? Because you don't really understand mm-hmm. quite what your avoidance is and how successful you were. So, you know, you have that, um, you know, if, if you wanted to figure out the total potential risk cost, it gets really silly between fines, damages, insurance problems, ransoms, trade secret, recipe and formula theft, all right? Reputation and brand damage, frankly, impact to top line revenue because of marketing reasons, labor for fixing things, cleanup costs. Like there are so many costs. It's not infinite, but it's 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 a significant multiple of if not revenue of of your like net profit it could be especially in uh, if you're an international organization in places like Europe with very very severe penalties for breaches of privacy right and then your budget then what does your budget really look like big international companies their budgets in the 50s of millions right but i mean there's like i don't know a hundred companies that have security budgets that big everybody spends way less but theoretically the types of risks they face are are just as vast right you just maybe lop off a zero at the end of the day the roi looks so unusual it's based off a significant amount of assumptions like what is the likelihood you're going to be attacked in a certain way what is the likelihood that one of those attacks would get through it's all subjective so it's subjective times subjective it's subjective squared, man. And then, right, your ROI either looks like it's 5% or it looks like it's 99.999%. And neither one really passes the sniff test. So I, I got to tell you, I think the industry, while we have formulas that we all just put together and we just kind of nod at ourselves and you're like, this this is it. I, I think the best practice is still yet to be discovered. So let's talk about the example of ransomware because it's very relevant and that affects small, mid-sized, big companies, governments. And I think ransomware is something that we kind of can quantify. There are cases where we know uh, the city of Atlanta, right? But the city of Atlanta got mm-hmm. ransomware, right? And I think to pay the ransom, it was $67,000. And then I think the articles on that said that city of Atlanta paid consulting firms, um, Upwards, upwards of 17 million right 
and that's sort of a good example of clearly had they spent more money um, up front to defend, they would have had a they, they they would have had a better return on the investment because they would have avoided the ransomware. Don, can you talk to us a little bit about how do organizations you know avoid ransomware and what are the conversations you've had with with tech leaders on how to do that? I've talked to a number of people about the, about the ransomware. Uh, as a matter of fact, because one of the areas that, that people would look at, and when I would delineate some of these these costs and charges, I mean, it happened to the city of Baltimore. It happened uh, to many other places. The cost of doing business is, uh, or not able to do your business. Is, is it's enormous, right? Uh, like you say, for, for $67,000 in Bitcoin, they ended up hiring an outside consultant. Oh, we'll get it back. We spent a million, two million, three million, and it was upwards of like $17 million. They were losing, you know, their services were totally curtailed. They were going back to pen and paper and for months now. And, and the uh, uh, organizations were canceling conferences that were going to be in Atlanta and everything. So it was, it was a mess. The same thing happened in Baltimore and happened in some cities in Florida. Uh, but now what's, what's going on, what I'm seeing in the ransomware attacks, they're moving away from the big targets because the big targets have put into anti-ransomware products. They're, they're, they're protecting themselves. They're backing up their data. They're doing different things like that. So now they're going after the small, uh, medium, small clinics, hospitals, small hospitals, uh, medical centers, uh, small towns, municipalities, because they don't have, like you said uh, earlier, Nathaniel, they don't have a full-time uh, CISO on board. They, don't, they, they, they hire it out, right? The guy comes in, he sets up the network, and he leaves, and they're totally exposed. So this is where it's happening. And uh, actually, Duloth has a, has a different product line in company, an anti-ransomware product, and uh, it, it doesn't do a backup because a backup still has to be reinstalled so you you'll still you know you're still down for a few days in order to get your backup back installed if it's a big system so the the trick is not letting the guys in in the first place not letting them touch your your system being able to affect your your product by encrypting you know your 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 system so you need to protect it underneath the operating system and that's the key well said thank you so much for 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 that insight on on ransomware and um, dual auth. And uh, the concept that comes to mind for ransomware mitigation is um, one, two, three backup. And that is a type of backup that has um, one offsite backup and one onsite backup. And uh, it allows you to have a fail safe should you need to have more than one backup. And if an organization sets that type of backup procedure, in place regularly, then if they do have ransomware, uh, they'll be able to recover and the damage will be um, next to nothing. But ra- ransomware is, uh, it's easy money. I mean, for, for the organizations that develop ransomware um, and sell it, it's easy money. I mean, it's a good business model and we need to, you know, back to threat modeling, we, these, these people that are making exploits, they operate like educated, organized corporate project planners. They're not stupid people. They're not low on resources. They, I mean, these are organized, sophisticated, 
enterprises of criminal exploits. And a lot of them are in countries where they don't have extradition treaties or uh, agreements, or they don't even have friendly political relations with the, with the United States or many countries in the West. And so that gives them a shield of anonymity and protection. And that's the, that's the irony of it. So a lot of them coming from the Ukraine, a lot of them coming from Russia, uh, many of them coming from China and a lot of uh, other countries um, not to be named, you know, an, ex- an exploit isn't country specific. And then, you know, these, uh, these, these dark net communities where um, people talk, uh, there's actually a, there was a news story on, uh, there's an online university on the dark web where you can learn how to be a, a exploit creator. You know that you can pay, pay, and uh, I think you pay through bit. Sure. You pay through Bitcoin. But the, the 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 activity that's going on in the dark net in in the middle of the pandemic, I'm sure, has increased. And I'm sure government is you know in there and is monitoring that. But there's just so much activity going on that, and with all of the social unrest and the pandemic response that uh, police and first responders are overworked with, I, I really don't think that they're able to chase down the vast majority of the threat groups and the criminal hacking enterprises that are out there. I just don't think they have the time. They're spread way too thin. There's too many of them. And it's really sad. And that kind of goes back to, okay, knowing this as a leader of security risk or technology at your organization, you got to pick a threat modeling methodology. You got to study it. You got to apply it, ingrained it into the culture of, of your team. And you're going to be that much more defended because it's going to change the actions that you take to mitigate those risks that are likely. I mean, threat modeling is all about figuring out what risk is likely for your organization. There's lots of risks out there, but they're not all likely. It's not very likely that an airplane is going to crash into, you know, a building that's not by an airport. It's just not very likely. That's not really a risk you need to do much for. And um, if you're a company that really doesn't have much for intellectual property, uh, if you're not designing products, chances are you, you, you're not going to have much of a, you know, intellectual property internal insider data leak risk. You know, you may have other risks, but risks are specific to companies and industries. And um, these models take that into consideration. So as we get to the final, final few minutes of this fun and engaging podcast with two amazing thought leaders in technology, security, Donald Malloy and Nathaniel Engelson. Um, I want to hear your outgoing comments for the broader community in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of social unrest, in the middle of economic decline and economic uncertainty. There is still a promise of innovation, I believe, and I know you believe too. What What do our listeners need to know about how to best assess their threats, defend their technologies, and what's your final statement? I'll go first, Jeremy. Uh, I think there are some solid fundamentals that have permeated the industry. And one thing we didn't get a chance to touch upon is, because again, it's slightly off topic, but it's OWASP. Uh, you know, as a, a software engineering leader, I don't know that I could do anything um, as far as teaching my teams about secure coding if it wasn't for OWASP, the Open Web Application Security Project. It's a fantastic 
information source, including the OWASP top 10, that uh, is very easily digestible by engineers. It talks about top 10 most common vulnerabilities in your code. Number one, SQL injections, right? And it, it keeps going uh, past 10 as well. So the information's out there. It's permeated the industry a bit. So these digital products we're creating are getting created better than ever. I mean, hackers are great. Exploits are good. My point is that the fundamentals are fairly solid. We just have to be executing on them. We have to make sure we're following the fundamentals, of which threat modeling is part of it. Document your data flows, your process flows. Understand, you know, it's as important as understanding your value chain. Do the work to make sure that you're doing some static dynamic code analysis. Again, maybe not fundamental for everybody, but it's a fundamental if you're following a compliance program. We're going to tackle more than 80 or 90% of vulnerabilities just by doing those fundamentals. Again, just like a firewall or a VPN is fundamental to infrastructure, right? So we just, so many companies know so much about these kind of low-hanging fruit that I think it's really just up to people to enact them and keep up with them. And that's what I would encourage everybody in these kind of virtual times that we're having. Keep fighting the good fight. Remember your hygiene with security, just like you're remembering to wash your hands and your personal hygiene. And you'll stay relatively protected. Nathaniel, you are a patriot. You are a inspiration <laughs> to a lot of people, including me and everyone listening to this. But I want to summarize something because you brought up the top 10 from OWASP, and I'm a fan of the top 10. So I'm just going to give everybody the top 10. So we have SQL injections. We have broken authentication. We have sensitive data exposure. We have XML external entities um, we have broken access control. We have security misconfiguration. That's an interesting one. Cross-site scripting, which uh, that's still happening. Um, insecure deserialization using components with known vulnerabilities. Insufficient logging and monitoring. That is the OS top 10. It's just for 2020, but I know it changes from year to year, right? Those top 10 are 80 to 90% of where the big vulnerabilities are, and you can do a lot to reduce that risk dial just by reviewing and addressing those. So great to bring that up. Donald Malloy, what are your outgoing thoughts? So I, I can agree with Nathaniel. Uh, OWASP is, is an important organization. I've spoken at some of the conferences uh, when they used to have them, and I'm a <laughs> member of it. And so I would say there are local chapters everywhere, wherever you may be living. There is a local chapter. I belong to my uh, local chapter here in the Orange County one. And be part of it because there's a lot of good things going on. They have, you know, in normal times, regular meetings where you can, you can meet with other people that you can learn, you can learn from. And, and there are some other meetups that, that you can find too. Uh, absolutely. But I think we, uh, we're entering a phase where we need to be vigilant in everything that we do, we, we, we can't be lax because uh, you know, BitLocker on your computer doesn't solve the problem. TPM doesn't solve the problem. You know, we were, we were told all these things are going to solve the problem. And we can't wait. And, you know, I belong to the Secure Technology Alliance. And, and we sit around and we had meetings. And one of the things we were talking about is 
we need to get security right because if we don't, the government's going to come in and do it and it's not going to make anybody happy. So industry needs to, to be in the forefront of doing it. And we have the capabilities, as you said, Nathaniel, we, we, we know it needs to be done. We just need to, to continue to do it. We need to continue to educate and, and be vigilant, you know, even tell, you know, little grandmas, you know, that hey, don't click on that link, you know, but, but, you know, the real key is when you're in companies and like you said, as we're at home, we don't have the, 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 the communication uh, resources available to the companies, you know, when people are spread out. And, and so there's much more vulnerabilities. That is a taste of what's going to happen with 5G as all of our devices are now connected and they're all, you know, if they're not secure, there are going to be big problems. And I can tell you lots of stories about that, but we, we, we don't have the time for it. John, thank you so much for your insight and thank you everybody listening. Um, it's been so great to have your time and to share some insight on, on threat modeling and risk management best practices for uh, CISOs. Uh, so again, thank you, Donald Malloy. Thank you, Nathaniel Engelson. This is Jeremy Swenson signing off with the Abstract Forward podcast.